way that science has impacted the world of crime solving is always fascinating. I mean, I know CSI is fiction and a lot of what they do is fictional, but it just gives you an idea of, of where science can make things happen, where cold cases can become can be cracked by science. And such as this one, 40 years, nearly 40 years, the identity of a person responsible for the murders of two women in Toronto just months apart remained a mystery. 45-year-old Susan Tice, 22-year-old Aaron Gilmore were both sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in their homes in 1983. There was really nothing to link the cases, despite the fact they happened just months and just kilometers apart. Then in 2000, the first breakthrough, DNA evidence allowed police to determine that the same person had been responsible for both those deaths. And now, 22 years after that, and nearly 40 years after those murders, DNA has once again played a key role in leading police to a suspect. Joseph George Sutherland, 61 years of age, of Moussigny, has been charged under the 1983 Criminal Code with two counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Aaron Gilmore and Susan Tice. As relieved as we are to announce this arrest, it will never bring back Aaron or Susan. Now, apparently, uh, Joseph Sutherland was living in Toronto at the time, but he was arrested by provincial police in the remote town of Moosonee, which is near James Bay. It's about 850 kilometers north of Toronto. Now, for the families of the victims, this has been a long and painful wait with very little in the way of answers. Uh, Aaron's brother, Sean McCowan, spoke at the police press conference this morning. On behalf of Aaron's family and many, many friends, we're all very, very happy that an arrest has obviously been made in the vicious murders of Aaron and Susan Tice. The last few days have brought around a full spectrum of emotions, as you can imagine. And this is a day that I and we have been waiting almost an entire lifetime for. Nearly 40 years. Given the passage of time, police will obviously be looking into other cases to see if their suspect, Joseph Sutherland, is linked to any other unsolved cases. Now, that suspect has been in Ontario for 39 years since these murders. So obviously we're going to look into every possible connection to any possible case throughout Ontario to ensure that he isn't responsible for any other offences. So how did they do it? How did they manage to find a suspect who was never on the radar back when the murders were committed? Well, in 2019, they began using a technique called investigative genetic genealogy to identify the suspect's family group. The process involves cross-referencing DNA found at crime scenes with those DNA samples that people voluntarily submit to services like 23andMe or Ancestry.ca that are then uploaded to open source databases. The researchers then work backwards to build a family tree to try and pinpoint the suspect. Um, This is how they identified the person ultimately responsible for the death of nine-year-old Christine Jessup, the murder of Christine Jessup back in 1984, for which, of course, Guy Paul Morin was was wrongly convicted. Um, So how exactly does it work? Well, one of the people who worked on that Jessup case and who's been really involved in this from the outset is uh, my next guest, Dr. Anthony Redgrave. He's lead forensic genetic genealogist at Redgrave Research Forensic Services. He can't comment on this latest arrest. But again, he and his team have worked on some of the most high-profile cases uh, using this technology. Uh, Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. This is, I think, a really, I mean, I think people read about these cases and how they're solved. And we think, you know, of of a whole slew of cases of late where we hear about uh, genetic genealogy. But tell me exactly how it works. It seems like such a fascinating way of trying to find the answers to some of these, uh, these old mysteries. 
The simplest way I can put it is that it's very similar to the method used by adoptees or people who don't know who their birth father is to find those relatives. But we have the added complication of the person we're trying to identify not being able to speak for themselves and tell us things like how old they are, where they were born. And so we work primarily with anthropologists, medical examiners, and homicide detectives to fill in those gaps and get sort of a profile of who we're looking for, whether it's an unidentified deceased person or a perpetrator of a violent crime, to sort of get as close to that estimate that you would have from a living person as possible. And then from there, we do generally the same kind of research of looking at the unidentified person's DNA matches that are available in, in a database. We only use GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA for forensic use. They're the only ones that we're allowed to use. Mm-hmm. And we'll go through all the people in that database who share any amount of DNA with the person we're trying to ID, usually from greatest to least and figure out how they all relate to each other. And then it turns into sort of a logic puzzle. If you have two or more individuals who are genetically related to each other and you know where they come from and who their common ancestors are, and then you have an additional unidentified person and you don't know where they come from, you can assume that if they all share DNA together that the unidentified person probably comes from the same family group. Seems simple enough, but then we have to do it three or four or a hundred more times and find out where all of their family lines come together to make the person that we're looking for. Yeah, I gather it's a very complicated way of building out a family tree of, a, of somebody, whether it be an unidentified victim or an unidentified perpetrator or alleged perpetrator. Yes, there's some additional complications that make forensic cases harder than adoptee cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, the methodology is basically the same, but we have the added complication of not being able to contact those matches unless there's an extreme circumstance that necessitates it because we don't want to expose sensitive case information or even let people know that we're working. We work very quietly. We try to get as much information on the DNA matches as possible without having to contact them. Hopefully, if they've attached a tree to their DNA kit so we can just look at it. If not, then we'll have to just figure it out on our own. And that's especially important with perpetrator cases because obviously the more sensitive nature of them. And we're usually not looking at people who are closely related enough that they're going to know the person we're going to ID, Mm. but we still don't want to run any risks of exposing any information. So secrecy is very important. (laughs) Yes, no doubt, because that's how you got your start, right? You, You got your start in this by looking for birth parents. Yes. So my my husband, Lee, is an adoptee and I didn't know who my father was. So we both were self-taught how to actually do this kind of research. We learned on our own cases. I didn't know my birth father. I also didn't know my maternal grandfather's family. So those were difficult puzzles that I ended up having to resort to DNA to solve. And from there, we worked on friends' cases that we practiced on, and then we went on to take cases professionally. And the puzzles we were working on got easier, and we then found ourselves working in forensics. 
Yeah, it's a remarkable story. I, I mean, what what's so fascinating about it? I imagine it, it is so. It must have been very emotional for you to trace back and walk back into your own family this way. But I know it must be it must be emotional too when you start to look into other cases and looking for these answers. Because oftentimes these these are mysteries that have laid dormant for years. These are families that have had questions about these cases for many, 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 many years. And you're sort of helping turn back the clock to some extent. That's a really critical thing for you know our our team of of student interns who work on cases with us. Something that I try to help them understand when they're getting into working with us is that it is going to be emotional work. And we absolutely experience things like proxy trauma when we're looking at difficult case details because we end up being privy to things that aren't public knowledge because that'll help us with our with our search. If we have more details of who we're looking for, then it'll be easier for us to look. But things like the Jessup case that, that we worked on, that was incredibly difficult for our team because, you know, this was a little girl. Right. I remember um, that for listeners who might forget, uh, Christine Jessup was a Toronto girl who was uh, who was killed back in 1984. There was a wrongful conviction. Eventually, with the help of, of uh, genetic genealogy, uh, what we believe to have been the real perpetrator was identified. Sorry, sorry go ahead. When you realize the ripple effect of all the people that cases like this affect, it doesn't only affect the families of the victims, it also affects the investigators who have devoted their entire lives to working on these cases. And again, in the case of Christine Jessup, there was a man who was wrongfully convicted, Guy Paul Moran, and he was exonerated, but there was always this cloud hanging over him of continued suspicion because there wasn't a new suspect put forward. And when the announcement came that the case had been solved, the thing that he actually articulated was it was like he had been freed twice. And that hit me. Like We have some other wrongful conviction cases that we have working on. And that just like gave me an even bigger drive to put more effort towards that. The applications of forensic genetic genealogy are vast. Dr. Anthony Redgrave is with us this half hour. He's lead forensic genetic genealogist at Redgrave Research Forensic Services. We're talking about uh, just how genetic genealogy works. Uh, There was an announcement from Toronto Police today about the arrest of a suspect in a cold case dating back to 1983, the murders of two Toronto women uh, and a suspect arrested um, through the same process, a suspect by the name of Joseph George Sutherland, who's now uh, in in custody with Toronto police. And we've been talking just about how it works. Uh, Dr. Redgrave, what, I mean, you really kind of, I mean, you and others have pioneered this in some ways. It's not seen as, I mean, it's really a growing and very important uh, branch of all this, but it's very new. It, it is very new, actually. Um, you know, we, uh, my, my husband and I, we, we started working these cases when there hadn't even been a case announced yet as being solved. We started with the DNA Doe project when they, before they even finished their nonprofit application, we we were on board with their first couple of cases. I helped with developing their internal training. I was the training coordinator and I went on from there to build a online course and immersive training situation for, for people who want to learn how to do this. You know, I ended up training departments literally all over the world, you know, through the through the course that I developed, I think I've taught people in Australia, Brazil, the UK, uh, obviously Canada, the Netherlands. I'm just so glad that I can I can share what we've cultivated to get more of these cases solved. And it's amazing to see departments take the initiative to do internal trainings to be able to handle these cases themselves. And I've been seeing a lot of that happening. I've, I've uh, 
supported a couple of departments in setting up their their divisions that work on these cases. So in an ideal world, people won't need me anymore. <laughs> but yeah. still, there's only a small handful of people of high caliber who can really crunch on the more difficult cases. And I'd love to see more people get there. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what's, what one of the things that's fascinating about, it, of course, is that DNA and, and the and the you know, the supply of DNA from a crime scene is not finite. Or it's, it's not infinite. It's finite. So you have to be, I mean, it's a very delicate process from beginning to end, right? Getting the right DNA, DNA information, uh, going into the databases of these different genealogy organizations to try to find what you're looking for. I mean, it's 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 not easy or it doesn't look, it's not not like watching CSI, in other words. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely not like CSI. One thing I can tell you about the difference between working a John or Jane Doe case versus working a perpetrator case is because exactly like you said, the the amount of DNA is quite finite. In the case of a perpetrator case, you may not even know if a biological sample left at a site belonged to the perpetrator. There could be a mixture of, of samples. And this is uh, one of the crucial things on the outset of a case is getting that really good usable d- digital DNA file. There's been also a number of advances in lab science that have made that so much easier. When we first started working on these cases, the amount of DNA that was required to get a usable kit for forensic genetic genealogy when we started four or five years ago, what we can work with now, what labs can work with now to get a usable kit is like less than a tenth of that. That's amazing. Like this is inspiring a lot of innovation in a lot of interdisciplinary fields. And it's just really encouraging to see these cases get closed out. Yeah, I, I know there's sometimes concerns over privacy when people submit their, their you know, when they're looking for to see if they have relatives in another part of the world, they submit their DNA to these organizations. How does that sit with you? At least here at, at Redgrave Research, we take the privacy of the DNA matches just as seriously as the privacy of the case. All the people who we work with have a non-disclosure agreement, and when we submit reports, we remove any identifying information of any DNA matches as we possibly can. So that doesn't even always make it back to the department. What we give them is the scientific report that they need to right. uh, you know, get a warrant or issue a death certificate or something, but they don't need to know the names of the DNA matches and their great, great grandparents and so forth. They don't see the whole puzzle that you would see. Yes. Uh, unless it's specifically requested or if I'm training a department, we will keep as much information about living people out of reports as possible because we value the, the the privacy and security of the DNA matches. They're, they're our bread and butter. We need those DNA matches in order to work cases like this. So you know, it's slightly different because we're based in the U.S. and uh, we aren't covered by the, the GPDR Act. So we're able to get a lot more information on living people in the U.S. than we are in Canada. And that's right. actually one thing when when we've worked on Canadian cases, for example, for example, Christine Jessup and, mm-hmm. and the Babes in the Woods. We worked closely with the departments while we were working on those cases. If we ran into an issue of not having enough information, we would we would ask them for an assist. But we did that incredibly rarely because, again, we value people's privacy. Right. Tell me about the Babes in the Woods because that's a Vancouver case and it's a very old one. Uh, we now know a brother, stepbrothers found um, in the park many, many 70 years ago, I think. Um, and, and you're working on that. What can you tell us about where you are with that one? 
What I can tell you about that is that our work on that case is done. The, the lab was only able to get usable DNA kit for one of the boys, but it was enough to identify both of them as, as it was found that they were indeed half-brothers. Mm-hmm. Until and unless we are asked to participate more, we're, we're pretty much done with that one. We're just very glad that we were able to give some families some answers that they were looking for and give decades of investigators an answer because... Again, that was one that there were investigators who based their entire career around that and the peace of mind that comes from these kind of case closures. Like I said, it it extends to more than just the families. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, some of these cases you've worked on are cases that really saw no hope of ever being solved unless something like this came along to help. Yes. And uh, something that I like to stress about the effectiveness of forensic genetic genealogy is that as long as there is a usable DNA sample, and as long as that sample has been stored appropriately so that it can be extracted from and made into a digital file, technically, any of these cases are only going to get easier to solve because you have a seemingly infinite number of relatives and any number of those relatives may eventually get a DNA kit. So the the databases are just getting bigger. We're getting more data and that will make it easier for some of these older cases to get solved. Like we've worked on a number of many decades old cases that it was actually something about the age of the case itself that made it slightly easier to solve because also records open up after a certain amount of time you can get older records much easier than newer ones. So yes, this is very effective for older cold cases. And that's actually our favorite ones to work on. The oldest ones. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that when you and your husband sat down to try to figure out more about your own families, you ever thought it would lead to this, but it's a fa- fascinating, <laughs> fascinating uh, work that you're doing. Dr. Redgrave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.